You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. It was Dr. King who said, We must learn to live together as brothers or perish as fools. Community. Jesus Christ has bound us together. And if you're just visiting or weren't with us last week, we are now second week of a six week series on not good to be alone. That you and I belong to one another if we belong to Jesus Christ. What we looked at last week is that the way that we are made, the the creation of humanity has implications for our community. We thrive only when we're in a circle of relationship. What we look at today is not creation, but redemption. And we see that we grow in grace only when we find ourselves in a circle of relationship. Our text this morning is a climactic, often overlooked passage of Scripture that comes right between the Exodus event, rescue of the Hebrews, From slavery in Egypt on the one hand and on the other hand between his engagement with them in covenant relationship. His making them a nation. In between those two events there is a passage of scripture where God addresses his people for the first time as a nation. You, he says, you. That passage is found in Exodus chapter 19 and it is there That God tells his people why it is, for what purpose uh, they have been redeemed, and what their relationships together are to accomplish in the world. He calls them a priestly kingdom. Would you open up Exodus 19? You'll find that on page 57 in the Pew Bible, and you're welcome to make use of that. Uh, Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. And uh, there is one, you know, tricky word in there that we're going to read this aloud. It's refidim. And, uh, if, you know, what you learn in, in, in seminary as you're being trained to be a minister is how to fake pronunciation of words that you really don't understand. So say refidim uh, when we get to that part. But let's stand and uh, read God's word together. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. And this is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Where is God? It's a question we've been asking ourselves, many of us, this week, as we have watched the news feeds coming out of Haiti. Where is God? I have felt a sort of a sickness in my stomach this week, and I trust that many of you have as well. And this question comes to mind, and whatever else the Sunday sermon needs to be about, I felt had to address myself to this question, where is God? And then as I reflected on it more and more, I, I realized that you know, I'm not sure we ask this question in a unique sense today than we do on any other day. And every single week, when you and I gather in this room, we bring in some way that question about our own lives. Where are you, God, in this? You fill in the blank. Because when we come together, we bring a load of guilt. We bring anxieties. We bring hurts into this place. And the most important thing we need to know when we gather here is precisely where is God in the midst of that? The question, where is God, has been put most eloquently, I think, by Boston University professor Elie Wiesel, Holocaust survivor out of the death camp at Buchenwald, who writes the book Night, in which he says, Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence. What brought Wiesel to mind to me this week is I was reviewing a conversation that he has with a French writer, uh, Francois Mauriac. Francois Mauriac was a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning writer, one of the most famous writers of the 20th century, the most famous writer, uh, Wiesel thinks, in Europe at the time. And Wiesel wants... Um, Now, he's some 10 years out of Buchenwald, a young um, 20-year-old Israeli journalist, wants to get an interview with the prime minister of France, who's a Jew. And he knows that the prime minister has made Moriak sort of a, a guru or a counselor or advisor. So Wiesel thinks, if I can get an appointment with Moriak, maybe he will help me get an, an interview with the prime minister. And so Moriak and Wiesel have this meeting, which, as Wiesel looks back on their conversation, would describe as a painful discussion. And I want to read to you first Wiesel's recollection of the discussion, part of it. Wiesel says, we met and we had a painful discussion. The problem was that he... Moriak was in love with Jesus. He was the most decent person I ever met in that field as a writer, as a Catholic writer, honest, sense of integrity. And he was in love with Jesus. He spoke only of Jesus. 
in that conversation, Wiesel recalls for Moriak a memory of a child who is hung. Wiesel, as a boy himself, had seen it and had remarked that on the child's face seemed to be the face of an angel. And as the angel's life slipped away in this horrible moment, there was a murmuring behind Wiesel. Where is God? Where is he? Where can he be now? This is the question that Wiesel sets before this Jesus loving writer, Moriac, who wants to answer but cannot find the words. These two friends, these two men became lifelong friends. In fact, Moriac was the one who would encourage Wiesel to write his story night for an English reading audience and uh, Wiesel would honor Moriac by inviting him to write the foreword to the book in the first edition. And in that edition, we read Moriac's account of this conversation. He writes, a voice within me answered where he is here. He has been hanged here on these gallows. And he would go on to write, and this is the, the end of the foreword. And I, who believe that God is love, what answer could I give my young questioner whose dark eyes still held the reflection of that angelic sadness which had appeared that day upon the face of the hanged child? What did I say to him? Did I speak of that other Israeli his brother, who may have resembled him, the crucified, whose cross has conquered the world? Did I affirm that the stumbling block to his faith was the cornerstone of mine and that the conformity between the cross and the suffering of men was in my eyes the key to that impenetrable mystery whereon the faith of his childhood had perished? Zion, however, has risen up again from the crematories and the charnel houses. The Jewish nation has been resurrected from among its thousands of dead. It is through them that it lives again. We do not know the worth of a single drop of blood, one single tear. If the eternal is the eternal, the last word for each of us belongs to him. This is what I should have told this Jewish child. But I could only embrace him weeping. As Wiesel puts this question before Moriac, Moriac can but hold this Israeli journalist in his arms and weep. But what Moriac knows is that Jesus Christ is the answer to the question, where is God? Jesus Christ is present for Wiesel in the Holocaust. Jesus Christ, the one who is crucified on the cross, is the one who takes to himself our pain, who enters into our grief, our guilt, even our death. And in so doing, Jesus Christ is the one who shares with us his peace, his freedom, his joy, even his life. To say this about Jesus is to describe him as a priest. 
After all, that's what a priest does. A priest stands at the center. A priest stands at the center between heaven and earth. A priest stands at the center between God and man. And so Jesus Christ is the priest for the world. He is the great priest. He's the living center of human history. And yet, how is it that we can experience the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ when I've never looked into his eyes? I trust you haven't either. The answer to that question is less in the words that Moriak speaks and more in the gesture of his embrace as he holds his friend in grief. The answer to that question is given to us in our text today, and it is the same answer that we get not only in Moses, but also in Peter. These two great men of faith answer the question, where is God? The same way in the priestly ministry of a community. The priestly ministry of Jesus expressed through a people. And so I'd like to look at this answer both in Exodus and in Peter's writing. More importantly, I want to reflect with you on the experience of each man that might have convinced them that this is true for them. And I hope you might be convinced that it's true for you as well. Moses' answer is found here in Exodus 19.6 where he hears God say, you shall be for me a priestly kingdom. Now, it's interesting that Moses has come to Mount Sinai with the people uh, of Israel, the sons of Israel, they're called in the text. They're at the foot of the mountain. They camp there. And Moses, the text tells us, immediately goes up the mountain. There's a little geographical insertion that locates us in the narrative, but really the text says on the third day with striking urgency, they arrive and Moses goes up the mountain to God. I ask myself, why does Moses go up the mountain? Does he love to hike? Does Moses know that God would be at the top of the mountain? Well, the answer is yes. Moses, as it turns out, has been to this mountain before. Flashback, Exodus chapter 3. Moses, uh, let's say Moses is in a, a season of life that we might call the nocturnal silence season. He's not where he wants to be, and he is alone. He is a shepherd with Jethro, his father-in-law's sheep, and he's passing through the wilderness of Sinai when on one day, the Moses who is alone and who must be alone because he's in exile for the crime of murder back in Egypt, Here's a voice speaking, Moses, calling out to him. He sees, as you know, a burning bush. And what does the voice tell Moses? It tells him, go and get my people. The cries of my people who have been impressed in Egypt have risen to my ears. And now I send you to go get my people and to bring them here. And how does Moses respond? Who am I? Which... Friends, is the same question that so many of us bring the moment we start to feel God is tugging on our hearts and inviting us into his grace. Who am I? For Moses, there are all kinds of excuses or resistances that come to his lips, many of which are very socially acceptable. Uh, the first of which I, I think is probably, who are you? 
you know, Moses might think, I don't have much religious credential. Remember, I've been raised in the Pharaoh's court, educated as an Egyptian. I heard stories about the Hebrews and some awareness of that, but I'm really not very proficient. And what's your name again? And, and, and then he, he, he says, um, uh, who am I? Because I think uh, who would believe a man like me who just walks in and tells such an incredible story that the, God is going to redeem a slave people out from beneath one of the most powerful civilizations on the earth. And, and who am I if I'm um, to do this? I have to speak and I'm a man of poor diction. I can't articulate anything. But behind all of these questions, who am I, I think, lies the real one. Moses knows that he's been invited to stand on holy ground. He has taken off his sandals at the Lord's instruction. And in the back of his mind, there is the one bit of knowledge that he does not confess, that he, I think, at this point cannot confess. And that is that he is a murderer. He is morally unqualified for this task. He is morally unqualified to have anything to do with the holy God, and he knows it. And yet, listen to the word of grace spoken to Moses when the Lord says to him, Moses, you're going to do it. I am going to make you capable. And here's how you'll know. He gives him a sign. There are several smaller signs, but the ultimate sign is you will know who you are and who I am when you see the fulfillment of this prophecy, that is that someday the people of Israel will worship me on this mountain. And so several months later, Moses, as he's leading the people through the wilderness, comes to the spot and it looks familiar and he realizes that's the mountain. God has done what he said he would do on behalf of his people. God has done what he said he would do in my life. Now I know who I am. And Moses goes running up the mountain to be face to face with God. God gave Moses a sign. What was a sign? It was a community who responded to God's word. Who would have thought that Moses could find his own faith through the response of the Israelites to God's word? The Israelites who grumble all the way through the wilderness become for Moses a sign that confirms the word of God in his own life. They are, even to Moses, a priestly kingdom between him and his God. Moses uses, the Lord instructs Moses to use a, a, a descriptive image to uh, describe a little more fully this phrase, priestly kingdom. And it is the the image of a treasured possession here at the end of verse five The phrase, a treasured possession describes a, a king's private treasure, financial reserve. You see, the king would own the finances of the whole kingdom, of course, and use those for its administration. But the treasured possession was for a king personal use. He could spend it for that which delighted him serendipitously uh, for joy. And so the Lord here says, the whole earth is mine, but I have chosen you, Israel, to be a priestly people for my own purpose that I'm going to spend for my own joy in revealing my grace, the grace of the great high priest to all creation. You're a subset circle on mission for the whole circle, all of the nations. And so this proves to be true even in Moses's life. 
So Moses answers the question, where is God in the ministry of the high priest, which is a priestly community? Peter will answer the question the same way. Uh, Flip over, if you will, to page 984 in the Pew Bible or first Peter, chapter two. First Peter, chapter two, verse nine. Here, the apostle Peter, who knew the great high priest face to face, writes, Largely to a Gentile or non-Jewish audience, by the way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a royal priesthood. The same answer. How does Peter know this? Well, God tells him, but more than that, he has experienced it. Peter knows Jesus Christ. He's met him down in Judea in the south around the revival of John the Baptist. But in Luke, we see the first encounter between Peter and Jesus on the shore of Galilee up north. Peter is cleaning his fishing nets on the shore and rather inconveniently, a crowd of people is gathering and pressing in upon him. This is an inconvenience also for the teacher, Jesus, who recognizing Peter says, hey, Peter. Get in your boat and take me out away from the shore that I can continue my lecture. And while they're there, notice Peter is alone in the boat with Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, cast out your net on the other side of the boat. He says, ah, we've been fishing all night. There's nothing there. And I think he's also reluctant because we've been just cleaning our nets, Jesus. And he says, no, do it. And there's such a harvest of fish that any fisherman knows I am in the presence of something very holy. Immediately, he falls to his knees. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The same kind of reaction that Moses had at the burning bush. And yet Jesus comforts him. Do not be afraid. And with this commission. From now on, I tell you, you will be catching people, Peter. I've got a gift for you in people and I send you to them. Peter, like me, is a slow learner. Uh, And we come to the end of Jesus's earthly ministry when we see again Peter's need for people. Jesus gathers his disciples around this table. It's the last night before he's crucified and he wants to give them the great commandment to love one another. But on either side of that little discourse, there is the betrayal of the one Judas and the bravado of the other Peter. Even though Jesus is saying, I tell you. If you want to be my follower, my disciple, then the way to do that is to love one another in community. And Peter doesn't seem to hear that because what he says is, even though all of these yokels are going to fall away and abandon you so much for your community, I will follow you alone, Jesus. I will strike out on my own and prove to be faithful to you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. And then Peter comes to the nocturnal silence of his own life. That night in the courtyard by a fire, he finds himself alone watching Jesus, but from a distance and interrogated three times. Don't you, don't you belong with these Galileans? Aren't you one of them? He says, I tell you, I am not one of his disciples. I tell you, I do not even know the man three times denying Jesus Christ. Peter is crushed by his failure as the cock crows. 
He'll need some restoration, which he receives in the Gospel of John, the very end of the book. We see a private interview between Jesus and Peter. Jesus makes a special attempt to reach out to him. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do. Peter, do you love me? Three times he asks him. It begins to hurt Peter. But after each affirmation of Peter's love for him, Jesus commissions him again. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Tend my sheep. He points him back to community as that place where not only he shares Jesus's love, but where he experiences it as well. And so Peter himself receives restoration in a community that reflects God's love. Moses had seen a sign of a community that believed God's word came to faith. Peter experiences the love of Jesus Christ for him in his restoration in a community that responds to Jesus's love. He has also a descriptive image. Peter does. He enhances this idea of a priest, a royal priesthood with the idea of a living stone, which to me sounds like an oxymoron living stone, which is just the point. The stone is the very last thing that one might imagine would come to life. And yet so we do because Jesus does. He, Peter says, is the living stone. He is the cornerstone. And you've got to choose what you'll do with that cornerstone. There are only two options. You can reject him as some builders do, or you can find your fit in relationship to him by joining his construction, by adding yourself as a living stone adjacent to another living stone and another living stone and another living stone. And as you and I are fitted into this temple, which is a priestly edifice, we find our fit and orientation, not only in relationship to one another, but more significantly in relationship to Jesus Christ, who is the one who determines the fit and orientation of the entire priestly structure. Moses and Peter agree. The approach to the center, our priest, is always through community. Brothers and sisters who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who hear his word and respond, who experience his love and respond, will always draw us closer to the center. So I close with four quick implications for you and for me. And the first is this. Priestly community is essential. There is no other way to approach the great high priest, not before he comes in the Old Testament, not after he has come in the new. It is always through a priestly community. It's essential. He says, you are a priestly kingdom. That's just who you are. Count Nicholas von Zizendorf says that there can be no Christianity without community. By the way, he's the founder of the Moravians, Hern Hut, and um, it's the community that did much of the missionary work down on the island of Hispaniola, Dominican Republic, and Haiti. There, but there is no community. There is no Christianity without community. Jesus calls us to himself, but he also calls us to love one another. The second uh, implication for us is that priestly community, it's not only essential, but it's also always flawed. It'll always be a disappointment to you and to me. Think of the Israelites. They, they complain they want to go back to Egypt. Think of the disciples, the, the community to whom Jesus sends Peter. They will flee. They won't even try to follow Jesus that night. 
And yet these are the people who bring us closer to the great high priest. In fact, it's those people who have an ideal vision of what community should look like, who ultimately destroy it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. You try to create your image of community rather than allowing Jesus Christ to define his community for you. Uh, community is essential. Priestly community is always flawed. And uh, thirdly, priestly community invites us to believe in the great priest. It's not the relationships in themselves that are salvific. It's only the work of the great priest that is. So we need to be involved with community where his word is spoken to one another. I want to read from this book, which I'm encouraging all of us to read as we go through this Not Good to Be Alone series. And that is Life Together, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who writes this book in an underground seminary, an experience of community that he has, out of which grows the courage uh, to become a martyr. He himself will be executed in Flossenburg, another German death camp. And listen to what Bonhoeffer says about community. He said, but God has put the word of Jesus Christ into the mouth of men and women in order that it may be communicated to other people. In community, when one person is struck by the word, it speaks to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or a sister in the mouth of other people. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. And he needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain or discouraged for by himself. He cannot help himself without belying the truth. You and I need a brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. We need a brother or sister solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in a brother or a sister's own heart. Listen to this or is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother or sister. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. See, I don't know. When you get into a small group, you have to be a religious expert. No, these are just groups of people that gather with a cup of coffee and God's word and willing to listen to one another and pray. And you know what? Even though you don't have the right thing to say, even though you don't feel like you've got much hope, someone in that group is going to say something that God's going to use in your life. And you know what else? You someday are going to have enough faith to make a comment that's going to help somebody else in that same group about the great priest. Priestly community invites us to believe the great priest. And finally, priestly community moves beyond itself. It never exists for itself because the great high priest doesn't exist for himself. He seeks the glory of the father expressed through his love to the world. And so this inner circle of community is always on mission to the greater circle, always witnessing to the great high priest. You and I oftentimes think that community is for ourselves. Let me just ask a quick closing illustration here. Take an inhale, draw a breath of air and just go. Yeah. Okay, now do another one. Inhale again. Now inhale again. Inhale again. Okay. You keep doing that, you're going to die. Okay. If the sermon hasn't killed you, this little exercise will kill you. Why? Because you and I are made to inhale and exhale physiologically. We don't just take in. Same thing with priestly community. It is made to take in, to give out, to be blessed, to be a blessing. Priestly community will always move beyond itself to those friends and neighbors right around you, people you work with, people you ride the bus with, and even to the ends of the earth. 
Finally, Francois Moriac shows priestly community to his friend Elie Wiesel when he gives this witness to Jesus, whom he loves, by word and by embrace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have put people near us today in whom you want us to be related. People who will manifest for us in ways we would never otherwise discover the grace of the great high priest. You have put people in our lives who when we share our simple story of faith, we'll, we'll find that you are speaking to them. We pray that you would lead us, that you would strengthen us and embolden us to reach out to those people, to participate in the community that you want us to experience together. We pray that for each of us. We pray that for ourselves as a church. We pray that as we look ahead to Lent, that you might meet us in our small groups together. We pray that for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the world to whom you sent us. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio Email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.